0: Bringing you the latest in tax credit news, this is Tax Credit Tuesday with your host, Michael Novograti. The legislative challenges have been significant. We very much need legislation. we got to produce housing. We're still in a very volatile industry. It's a challenging atmosphere for almost anyone. We can't get all these big signals and messages. If he doesn't have a bipartisan bill, nothing's going to happen. Alternative energy is still very expensive. Hello, I'm Michael Novogratik, and this is Tax Credit Tuesday. Today is Tuesday, May 12, 2015. In our general news section today, I'll talk about legislation that would increase the annual issuance limit for issuers of bank-qualified taxes and bonds. In our affordable housing section, I'll share news about the latest efforts to establish a minimum rate for the low-income housing tax credit. Then, I'll discuss another piece of legislation that would provide additional funding for public housing and address a backlog of capital needs the bill isn't likely to become law, but it does give you a sense as to what the ranking member of the House Financial Services Committee thinks. After that, I'll outline new exclusions from caps that are set for Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac's new multifamily business. In New Markets Tax Credit news, I'll discuss what Senator Ben Cardin from Maryland sees as the role of the New Market Tax Credit in revitalizing the city of Baltimore. In the same section, I'll let you know which eight communities were recently designated as promise zones by the Obama administration. In historic tax credit news, I'll talk about a private letter ruling from the Wisconsin Department of Revenue and what it said about nonprofits' right to claim the state historic tax credit. To close out our podcast with the Renewable Energy Tax Credit section, I'll share news about recently enacted safe harbor legislation in North Carolina that could mean $180 180 million dollars or more in additional tax credits awarded over the next 5 years. If you're ready, let's get started. Before we jump into this week's news, I'd like to thank everyone who joined me last week at the Nevagradic Affordable Housing Conference in San Francisco. We had a terrific turnout, more than 400 people. It was great seeing a lot of familiar faces and also getting to welcome those who were attending for the first time. I also want to thank all of our panelists for sharing their insights and expertise on some of the topics that matter most to the affordable housing community. If you couldn't join us this time, or if you did attend but would like to revisit some of the panels, we have you covered. Stay tuned in the coming weeks for details on your chance to order a copy of the conference audio recordings. Shifting gears now, let's start off our general news section with a bill that was reintroduced this month to increase the annual issuance limit for issues of bank-qualified taxes and bonds. Now, as a general rule, banks cannot deduct interest expense associated with carrying taxes and bonds. This limitation dates back to the Tax Reform Act of 1986. Bank qualified taxes and bonds are a notable exception, but they're currently restricted to $10 million per issuer. This bill would increase the limit from $10 million to $30 million. As such, under the bill, banks could buy up to $30 million in tax and bonds per year per issuer and deduct 80% of associated carrying costs. Now, the only other time the limit has exceeded $10 million was when it was temporarily increased to $30 million the American Recovery Reinvestment Act, or ARA. That temporary increase expired in 2010. Aside from that one time, the bank qualified limit has never been raised or increased for inflation. The new bill would bring the bank qualified limit back to $30 million and index it to inflation. If passed, Bonds could be issued at lower interest rates, which could in turn provide lower financing costs to the ultimate borrowers. The bipartisan bill has three Democratic and two Republican co sponsors, and it's been referred to the House Ways and Means Committee. The legislation is called the Municipal Bond Market Support Act of 2015, or H.R. 2229. Follow me on Twitter for the latest tax credit legislative updates. My handle is at Novogradic. And for more information, on bank qualified bonds, please reach out to Peter Lawrence in our Washington D.C. office. To start off our low-income housing tax credit section, I have news about the latest efforts to boost the amount of equity that credit allocating agencies can make available to individual affordable housing developments. Senators Maria Cantwell, a Democrat from Washington, and Pat Roberts, Republican from Kansas, last week introduced a bill that would create a permanent floor for the low-income housing tax credit. The bill tax is identical to the House bill that was introduced on February 26th by Representative Pat Tiberi, a Republican from Ohio, and Richard Neal, a Democrat from Massachusetts. Like the House version, the Senate bill would do two things. Establish a minimum 9% LIHTC rate for new construction rental property, and establish a minimum 4% rate for acquisition loan long tax credits. The bill would apply to buildings placed in Service after December 31st, 2014. In a press release, Senator Cantwell highlighted two key statistics that show the effectiveness of the Low-Income Housing Tax Credit. The first was that each year, the Low-Income Housing Tax Credit supports more than 90,000 jobs nationwide. The second was that the credit has helped leverage nearly $100 billion in private investment in these critically needed affordable housing units. For these reasons, Senator Cantwell said in the release that this provision must permanently be extended without delay. The bill has been referred to the Senate Finance Committee, and at the time of this recording, the Senate bill had 22 co-sponsors, and the House bill had 56 co-sponsors. I'll be sure to keep you updated in future podcasts as to the status of this legislation, and in the meantime, you can find the legislative text at www.taxcredithousing.com. The Senate bill is S-1193, and the House bill is H.R. 1142. In other news, The ranking member of the House Committee on Financial Services introduced a bill this month to revitalize public housing units across the country. The bill would authorize full funding of the public housing program and would provide additional funding for a backlog of capital needs. The legislation was introduced by Representative Maxine Waters, a Democrat from California. Now, her bill isn't expected to become law anytime soon, but it does give you a good sense as to her perspective on the issue. Her bill calls for not only full funding of the public housing program, but also a loan guarantee for public housing agencies to attract outside investment into public housing, and a grant program to revitalize the most distressed public housing units. Her bill would authorize an additional $5 billion a year to address the backlog of capital needs in public housing. That need is currently estimated at $26 billion and growing. The bill also requires a one-for-one replacement when public housing units are demolished or sold. It increases tenant protections to give residents the option to stay in their communities. Waters' bill was referred to the House Committee on Financial Services, and it's called the Public Housing, Tenant Protection and Reinvestment Act of 2015, or H.R. 2231. You can read the text of Representative Waters' bill at www.hudresourcecenter.com. Click on the Legislation tab. Next. I have an update from the Federal Housing Finance Agency, FHFA, that will come as good news for the affordable housing community. As listeners know, the FHFA, in January, released its 2015 scorecard for Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. The scorecard caps both Fannie Mae's and Freddie Mac's new multifamily business at $30 billion for 2015. That, by the way, is the same limit that was in place in 2013 and 2014. The scorecard does allow certain exclusions from those caps in order to facilitate more affordable housing lending. Last week, the FHFA announced it's adding categories of loans that will be exempt from the annual caps. FHFA said it was revising the excluded category for two reasons. First, to facilitate continued liquidity in the multifamily finance market, which has increased substantially since the initial cap was set, and second, to reinforce FHFA's emphasis on providing financing for affordable rental housing. So what are the changes? Well, a pro-rata portion of multifamily loans purchased by Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac will be excluded from the caps based on the percentage of units affordable at 60% area median income. Also, there will be an increase in the income threshold for affordability. That means that for higher cost areas, the threshold will be increased to 80% of area median income, and for very high cost markets, it will be 100% of area median income. There will be other exclusions for certain assisted senior living homes and mixed income properties. Now, if you have any questions about this change, please reach out to Peter Lawrence in our Washington, D.C. office at 240-235-1701. Many of you may have heard that some of the lending rates and underwriting criteria had become more strict as Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac were running up against these limits, and time will tell to what extent these new rules will ease those financing changes. In New Markets Tax Credit news, Senator Ben Cardin of Maryland last week addressed the Senate about the protests and rioting in Baltimore. He said that it's not enough to restore public order to the city, but that it needs to be rebuilt in a way that creates job opportunities. He specifically mentioned the need to extend the New Markets Tax Credit and other programs that rebuild and stabilize communities. As some listeners may be aware, Senator Cardin is one of the original co-sponsors of a bill to extend the New Markets Tax Credit indefinitely. The bill would also provide an annual inflation adjustment and allow the New Markets Tax Credit to be taken against alternative minimum tax liability. That legislation is Senate Bill 591, and its House Companion Bill is H.R. 855. You can find copies of the bills at www.NewMarketsCredits.com. In other news, eight communities were designated Promise Zones by the Obama administration recently. That improves their chances to gain federal grants and other assistance. The Promise Zone program does not award federal funding. Instead, it provides communities with technical assistance, staff support, and preferential access to federal financial help. Each community will also get five full-time AmeriCorps VISTA members to recruit and manage volunteers, as well as work to strengthen the Promise Zone initiatives. The zones have a term of 10 years. The Promise Zone initiative was launched by President Barack Obama in 2013. The plan is to designate 20 communities over three years for the assistance. Five Promise Zones were designated last year. Eight have been designated this year and another seven will be selected for the final round next year. This year's designees include six cities, one rural area, and one tribal community. They are Camden, New Jersey, Hartford, Connecticut, Indianapolis, Indiana, Minneapolis, Minnesota, Sacramento, California, St. Louis and St. Louis County in Missouri, the South Carolina Low Country, and the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation of the Galala Sioux Tribe in South Dakota. The communities were selected from 123 applications from 36 states, this according to HUD. The designation makes it more likely that developers and investors will have opportunities to work in the eight communities. HUD said it will begin the competition for the third and final round of Promise Zones this summer. For more information, go to the HUD website at www.hud.gov. In state-level historic tax credit news, a Wisconsin nonprofit received good news in a recent Private Letter Ruling by the Wisconsin Department of Revenue. The Private Letter Ruling, or PLR, gave the nonprofit the right to treat capital expenditures for major renovation of its facility as qualified rehabilitation expenditures for the State Historic Tax Credit. Now, there was some question as to whether the nonprofit was entitled to claim those expenses for the purpose of the State Historic Tax Credit because the nonprofit is exempt from income taxes. The nonprofit asked for guidance because it plans to redevelop its facility However, it was unclear whether it would be eligible for the state's 20% historic tax credit. This ruling gives the company the right to the Wisconsin historic tax credit if such expenditures are otherwise qualified. This allows the company, in turn, to sell or transfer the tax credit to another taxpayer under the laws in place. This ruling is good news for nonprofits in the historic tax credit community. It shows that in this case, in Wisconsin at least, a nonprofit status isn't a hindrance to getting transferable tax credits. If you'd like to learn more about historic tax credits, please go to www.historictaxcredits.com. We have a host of resources for you there, including information on which states offer their own historic tax credit programs. And if you have further questions, please contact my partner Tom Boscia in our Cleveland, Ohio office at 216-298-9000. In other news, the nomination deadline for the Novogratz Journal of Tax Credits Historic Rehabilitation Awards has been extended to Thursday, June 11. These awards recognize development teams for excellence in the creative use of the historic tax credit. Winners will be honored at the Novogratz Historic Tax Credit Conference, September 17th in San Antonio, Texas. Please visit www.novoco.com/awards for more information and nomination material. In renewable energy tax credit news. We have some exciting news out of North Carolina, where the state energy investment tax credits safe harbor deadline was extended by one year. North Carolina, as listeners are aware, has been at the center of several tax credit debates in recent months. This energy bill managed to make its way through both houses of the state legislature and was signed into law by Governor Pat McCrory last month. The law changes the expiration date of the tax credit from January 1, 2016 to January 1, 2017 for projects that are fairly advanced in the development process. It passed the Senate by a 37 to 7 vote, and it passed the House by an 87 to 28 margin. Under the legislation, the projects eligible for the extension include those with less than 65 megawatts of capacity that are at least 80% complete by January 1, 2016, And those with 65 megawatts capacity or more, they're at least 50% complete by that date. It's estimated that over $180 million in additional tax credits will be granted over the next five years due to the extension. Governor McCrary said that the extension will help bring new renewable energy projects online. Now, the Safe Harbor bill is SB 372, and you can view it at www.energytaxcredits.com. Click on Legislation, and then click on State Legislation on this side rail to review it. Meanwhile, supporters continue to work on a long-term extension of the North Carolina renewable Energy Tax Credit. And, of course, I'll keep you updated on those efforts in future podcasts. Well, that brings me to the end of this week's report. I invite you to join me again next week for another Tax Credit Tuesday. This is Michael Novogratik. Thanks for listening. This weekly podcast has been brought to you by Novogradic and Company, LLP. Archived discussions are available online at www.novoco.com forward slash podcast or by subscribing to the Tax Credit Tuesday podcast in iTunes. Novogradic and Company, LLP, is a national certified public accounting and consulting firm with offices nationwide. Learn more about our professional services at www dot Novaco dot com.